Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. Last week in Chicago, a St. Louis University professor got to present something historic about something historical. At the annual meeting of the Archaeological Institute of America, he shared findings about his international team's work in Italy. There, in the Umbrian town of Spello, they unearthed an imperial cult temple built during the reign of Constantine, the Roman emperor famed for his conversion to Christianity and making it the Roman Empire's dominant religion. Joining me to talk about that discovery and its significance, we welcome that professor, Douglas Boyne, professor of history at SLU. Doug, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm thrilled to join you, Elaine. Thank you for having me. So take us to the day of discovery. You and your team are in a parking lot, and there's a big excavation machine ready to dig. What happens next? Well, what happens next that it was last July, just the very end of July, so hot in Italy. We were out with the team maybe at 6.30 in the morning to avoid the brunt of the Umbrian sun. And what happens is pretty much the most terrifying professional experience that I've ever had because the team's assembled, the machinery is there, the geophysics by which we've x-rayed the ground in previous seasons to detect whether there might be subsurface structures where we're standing has all been put together. And we start opening up the parking lot. And the only way I can conceptualize it for myself is by, by comparing it to what happens in mission control when researchers and engineers put a little rover together that they send into outer space and then they all sit you know you've seen those <laughs> those shots on tv where they're all they're all grabbing each other in mission control wondering is it going to ping back is it going to speak to us is it going to land for about two hours that morning the machinery and and my team did not find anything and so you know things were getting a little tense things were getting a little nerve-wracking until one of my colleagues who's worked in the area for a good 20 plus years francesco giorgi said did you see the soil change did you see the the pink soil and francesco said that's an excellent sign that we're probably coming down upon roman ruins and by mid-morning we'd found the roman ruins we were looking for and what was the first thing that you saw of the rune itself? The first thing that we saw of the rune was actually, we have to credit the heavy machinery operator who, if you can imagine the word grace, the word grace does not usually get applied to the, the workers of heavy machinery, <laughs> right. but he, he was using this claw to, to really scrape at the ground. And when he detected that there were ancient foundations of walls, you, you know, um, uh, applied together with masonry, he knew enough to to let go of his um, kind of heavy-handedness with the claw. So the first things that we saw were a scraping uh, of a, a stone wall that was not going to go anywhere. And that was instantly a sign that we had to move to a little bit more precision technique. And by, by mid-morning, like I said, 
what stayed in the ground versus what came out of the ground, it became incredibly clear and very fast, very obvious that we'd found three joining walls of a of a room. And mm-hmm. that was really phenomenal. And does that mean that you all jumped into the hole and and started sort of, <laughs> right? We we literally jumped in at that point because the the tools that are needed to to start to preserve in a very scientific, rigorous way, the the data that would furnish evidence for when we are in history and and who was there and what events might be captured in the ground, all of that information has to be collected at, at almost a very kind of um, you know piece by piece level. Mm-hmm. So we jumped in and got to work, and that's what we spent the next two weeks doing. Okay, I mean, as you're describing this. My heart is kind of, it's beating very quickly, sort of imagining what was happening. So it must have been incredible to actually have been there. Um, and finding this, it was a uh, something that you came through, through a, a process. And you did have some clues, right, um, about where that's you That's right. Were. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I do have to say, you know, to be fair to the whole team, it was about five years of work. If we really rewind to the first time that we had an inclination of what we were going to set out to do, it was maybe 2017, 2018. Mm -hmm. And we had gone just with the barest of information that there was a temple somewhere in this area outside the town of Spella, which is a remarkably beautiful, medieval, kind of romantic looking um, hillside town. Mm -hmm. And there's a sanctuary outside of it, which was a renaissance villa and it's an extraordinarily well manicured garden it is green and lush and you know it's open park but our team and i knew that there was a temple that had never quite been established you know its location had never quite been established and so for the next two three years we spent going into the archives of the town going into the photographic archives of previous excavations in the area, mostly just to check what everyone else had done and really make sure that when the time came to putting our project together, we weren't reduplicating anyone's work. We weren't walking on anyone's old trodden you know, stones. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I think, you know, it just took a lot of patience and a lot of really thoughtful planning by by me and the team to make sure that when we had the chance to open up the ground, we knew we, we had a very high probability of success. And, and I, I really do credit everyone for the, what's the right word, the staying power that we that we needed to get to this um, to this moment last summer. Right. And then there's also a, a fourth century letter that was part of what led you there, wasn't it? That's right. That's right. The, the letter, very surprisingly, was recorded on stone and this has all the hallmarks of of just a wonderful chapter of of archaeology meets history the stone was discovered in the 1700s by travelers who were traversing the road from rome up to umbria and beyond and the stone wound up in the mayor's office the town hall of spello which is where it currently is and it refers to a temple, and it refers to a temple in a Latin phrase that basically means that was a, a monumental undertaking, that it was gigantic. Mm-hmm. And that's what really kind of sparked our our imagination. Nothing like 
a, a monumental structure had ever been found anywhere near the discovery site for that that letter inscribed on stone. Mm-hmm. And that's what got our team interested in doing geophysics, which is the kind of classic science of of looking into the ground and seeing if there are possibly any remains. And I have to say, the team, um, you know, we, we looked at the report that came back from the geophysics, and it was, there were some parts of it that were disturbing, that, that, that were disturbed and just didn't have a lot of promise. But when my teammates um, messaged me that day, they said, you know, we've given, been given permission to also survey the parking lot across the street would you like us to do that you know just thinking it was a throwaway you know moment that we would just you know if it's there why not do it we've got the equipment out and of course wouldn't you know it it's the parking lot that gave us the the extraordinary discovery right so i mean the temple itself um the one that you and your team found it dates back to the fourth century ce and you said that there were three walls that you found? We did. We, f- we, we kept work purposefully limited last summer just to be able to confirm or deny whether the geophysics report was, um, you know, hallucinating or lying to us the <laughs> <Okay>. way <laughs> the, the technology would, we, you know, the technologists often talk today. And we needed to make sure that the that there were structures where it said they were, and so we picked a plot of land that the 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 survey results said would be quite promising, and we found what is probably, according to our to our interpretations, the inner walls of a larger temple complex. So a, a temple, um, if anyone's been to Rome or anyone's been to Pompeii, you know these are kind of large structures with kind of an, an interior space and then an exterior walls. And we found the interior walls of um, this larger structure. Mm-hmm. So do you know then what the temple looked like at the at the time of its prime? You know, can you envision sort of not just the building's appearance, but what it was like inside? At this point, we have to use a little bit of imagination because we really only have a five by five roughly five by five meter square on the ground that furnished the data for for what it is that um, mm-hmm. we've been able to to reconstruct next season's plan if I can just you know entice people with what's, yeah, with what's sure. ahead <laughs> next season's plan is to really uncover the rest of the structure at this point mm-hmm. so all of those uh, the, the larger pieces of the puzzle, are there fragments of architecture? Are you know any that any type of information like that would come from um, further excavation? Mm-hmm. So we're really just kind of scratching the surface of the discovery at this point, right. which and is really an exciting place to be. Right, and not scratching too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, as far as how the temple was used, um, what do you know about that? And you know, what does uh, the use of the temple sort of reflect about how it would look well as a you know when you head back down into the past and and the roman world is obviously you know much i'm going to say that's much different than our own but the way i'm going to describe it might sound eerily familiar and and i just want to kind of be clear that i'm i'm describing the roman world i'm not describing anything else it was a it was a place where the religion and the state were totally intertwined and so the worship of Roman rulers was something 
promoted by civic festivals, national holidays. These were big patriotic events that took place throughout the year centered around temples or games or amphitheaters in which the rulers were worshipped. And this is a practice that we know in antiquity goes back to Julius Caesar, for example, who was turned into a god when he was assassinated. So that practice, that practice of having big civic events throughout the year that would bring kind of unity or cohesiveness to uh, a social kind of community that had been going on for about 300, 400 years by the time our temple was built. And I just think it's an extraordinary reminder when we talk about religion in the Roman world, there was no common language, you know, even though we might think it was Latin, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no common language. There were multiple ethnicities, people of different cultural backgrounds lived on three continents. It would make sense, I think, in the rearview mirror why an imperial cult religion would have a lot of benefit for society because Mm -hmm. it it allowed people to find common ground amidst their differences. And this is how we know the Romans used it. So we have to imagine all sorts of um, games and festivities and, and celebrations happening in and around the temple. Right. So it was parting with a purpose. It, it was. Yeah. It was. And and this is in many ways how the Romans can see, you know, they, they had an ongoing running conversation with themselves about whether their rulers were um, people to aspire to as models or whether they were people to try to forget and and kind of brush under the, the rug. Mm-hmm. So the practice of turning a ruler into a deity, which is what the Romans did, was not something that they bestowed willy-nilly. It, w- it wasn't something that every ruler earned the right to be called a, a god. It was only the best administrators, the most capable managers, the most successful generals that the Romans granted this award to by mm. by deifying them. Yeah. And what what Constantine is doing at Spello is is claiming the mantle of of an ancestry that is deified. And and I think that's speaking to his his sense of looking back at maybe or maybe looking forward at his legacy and trying to establish himself as a as one of that um, preeminent, you know, premier rulers. Mm-hmm. And if you could, Doug, sort of give us a, a very brief history refresher on Constantine to contextualize what you and your team found, that would be great too. Yeah, I mean, Constantine is, I think everyone has some re- name recognition with him because he's associated with um, coming to power with uh, a very famous vision. You know, he, he's the emperor that had a vision of, of a cross or a cross-like symbol in the sky against a, an opponent, a political opponent. And it, it led to his triumphant entry into Rome and, and claiming of the imperial, um, the imperial title. So a lot of baggage gets put on Constantine's shoulders because he's the first Roman empire that we know who converted to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so... For most people who come into to the world of this history, it's easy to then kind of peg him or put him into a box as a, a, the first of of a, of a remarkably disruptive line. And I think the the remains at Spello and and the idea that Constantine is just as involved in promoting a pagan 
cult of the emperors as he is embracing his own newfound Christianity is just one of these weird chapters in history that I, I personally love because it shows us that our, our neat and tidy way of understanding the past zigzags a lot more than we might be comfortable admitting. Mm-hmm. And why do you think that challenging or adding nuance to the history, particularly of Christianity and paganism in the Roman Empire, why does that matter? I think it matters quite a lot for received history and in memory because the memory that ancient Christians will tell themselves about their moment of triumph. I mean, let's put this really into some perspective from their from their point of view. If you're an ancient Christian and you see one of your own now claim the the imperial palace, like no doubt about it, that's an amazing moment to celebrate when a group at the time who constitutes probably no more than 10% of the Roman Empire can see one of their own in a position of authority mm. for any outsider group or, or minority religious group. That's a moment to, to celebrate. And I think what Constantine's effort at Spello shows us is counter to the narrative that often develops about the Christian community in Rome, which is that they received this triumph or that they they found this moment of victory by by standing apart from Roman culture. Constantine clearly is engaged with old cultural conservative practices that can't quite be abandoned mm. at the start of the fourth century because the people he rules are 90% pagan. And is a very interesting way of reapproaching the narratives about the rise of Christianity or the triumph of Christianity, because Constantine is just, I think, an amazing example of nuanced politics uh, of a politician you know, really trying to address all of his constituents at once. Mm-hmm. And that alone says something about what it means to be a part of the religious world of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And then bringing it, I guess, more into today, I mean, is there anything about making this discovery now, Doug, that feels somehow like timely or perhaps that offers some lesson for how we look at the relationship between religion and politics in in a more contemporary context? I, I really do feel that seeing this pluralistic world work itself out in a a kind of collaborative coexistent way is a remarkable chapter in history to to go back to now that seeing the ways in which rome as a world of of vibrant diversity and i and i know that word can can sometimes be a a shorthand that it, it doesn't mean anything but languages and ethnicities and cultural practices across continents really did in ancient Rome find ways to cohabitate with each other in a very successful enterprise. Of, of, and I think what we see Constantine doing is a reminder that this world of politics and religion doesn't need to be as kind of stark um divided the mm-hmm. into camps of us and them in the way that we might um, instantly recognize today the, the the gray area that people lived in in antiquity is is 
just a wonderfully fertile ground to go back and, and reacquaint ourselves with. Douglas Boyne is a professor of history at St. Louis University. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Today's segment was produced by Aula Kuziz. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.